Well, good morning, class. Good to be with you again today. I hope the storm didn't bother you last night. I know it's not everywhere when they come these days, but we had one around 4 o'clock this morning that didn't want to let us sleep. But we thank the Lord for the rain and appreciate his blessings in that way to us. We're in the book of Daniel this morning. We're in chapter 4. I'd like for you to turn to that chapter with me. And I want to begin by just reading a couple of the verses that kind of sets the tone uh, for the chapter. Uh, Remember, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Everybody thinks of Daniel and they think of the prophecy. And that's correct. That's obvious. But all of that is to teach us that he is in absolute control. And that's what the first three verses are going to indicate to us. Look at it with me. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, the nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. May your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and the wonders. Now watch it. Which the most high God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing as we seek to make application and have understanding in this passage. Father, we do thank you today for the opportunity of looking into your word. Thank you for the privilege I have of being able to to teach the Word of God today. And I pray by your Spirit, you'll work through me, work in my heart, and work in the heart of others as well. And we'll thank you for what's going to be accomplished. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when we talk about Daniel, I've already mentioned it, we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And all through the book, that's the theme. And it helps us to understand the argument And therefore, the outline of the book. Chapter 1, God's sovereignty over the deportation of Jews, in particular, Daniel and his three friends. Chapter 2 through chapter 7, written in Aramaic because it's dealing with the Gentile world. And uh, it begins in chapter 2, goes through chapter 7. And it's talking about the sovereignty over the Gentile world. And then in chapter 8 to the end of the book, God's sovereignty over the nation of Israel. Now, as we come to chapter 4, we're going to talk about sovereignty in a little bit different way. And that is mentioned in verse 2. He is referred to and described as the most high God. Now, that's what we're going to see throughout this chapter. Um, But before we actually get into the text itself, I just want to make an observation that I think is interesting. Uh, Maybe you are aware of it, maybe you're not. But the first three verses in our English translations in chapter 4 are the last three verses in the the, uh, uh, Hebrew. That is, verse 1 is verse 31, verse 2 is verse 32, and verse 3 is verse uh, 33 uh, in the text. And for whatever that's worth, that is true. The second thing that I want to mention to you as we look at this text 
And we're going to come back to that, uh, to this subject, and spend a degree of time on it, is this term, the Most High God. Now, I want you to note, and if you're taking notes, you probably ought to get this down, at least I think so, that in chapter 3, verse 26, we have the first reference to the Most High God. It's found in chapter 3, verse 26. Then it's found here in verse 2 and chapter 4. It's also found in verse 17, in verse 25, in verse 32, and in verse 34. And then you have an indirect reference to it in uh, chapter 4, verse 26. If you look at that verse, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that heaven rules. In other words, he's the most high God. Heaven rules over man and over uh, the other gods, so-called gods, as well. Now, let's work our way through the text rather quickly because I want to spend some time on some of the emphases that we find. We read the first three verses, and it's Nebuchadnezzar telling us about his relationship to the Most High God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar has another dream. Uh, Notice in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful in these fantasies as I lay uh, on my bed, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Now, I want to make an observation. He has a dream. But he also has visions, that is, visual aids that he has in this dream. And they seem to be, the visions seem to be lingering on. After the dream is over, he's living with these visions uh, that he remembers. Now, I think all of us have had dreams, and we can still visualize things. I've mentioned to uh, you a number of times uh, that in Vietnam, certain events occur. And with my mind's eye, I can still see those things. They don't go away. I wish some of them would, but they just don't go away. So there, there's these lingering uh, uh, visions from his dream. Notice, he says, they kept alarming me. So, verse 6, I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might uh, make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the musicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, the diviners came in, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now, that's happened before. We've already seen it in the text in a prior chapter. But notice he says in verse 8, But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar. Now, we have Belshazzar in the next chapter, this is Belshazzar, has a T in it. And the interpretation of the name, uh, and you remember this is Aramaic, and it's coming back into the Greek and then the English to us. Uh, but uh, Belshazzar, Bel is Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's god. It's the Canaanite Baal. And the word is translated May Baal or May Baal save your life. That's the meaning of the word. So when we come to the text, we notice 
that Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar, that he may protect your life. Talking about Bel. According to the name of my God. Remember, we have a multiplicity of gods. Polytheism is rampant in the world. And people pick their gods. Nebuchadnezzar has Bel. But notice, and in whom is this Daniel, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. Notice the little case G. We mentioned that with one of the uh, class members here this morning. Always remember, it's lowercase G when you're talking about these gods. And he said, I related the dream to him saying, O Belshazzar, the chief of the musicians, since I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no uh, mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Help me to understand, Daniel, what it's meaning. Now, these are the visions, and he's getting ready to reveal the dream and the visions. These are the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. Remember, we had a dream prior to this where he saw uh, a statue and then we see that he had other things that he saw through dreams about God. Now notice, this is a tree. And notice, uh, he says, the tree grew large and it became strong and its height reached to the sky. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. Now, look up here a second. From Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, and those who lived with him, they understand. They understood the world to be limited to his kingdom. They didn't know of anything beyond that. And so this is really not hyperbole as much as it is the perception of the people in that day. They are uh, the, the uh, center of human civilization. And it was visible to the ends of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. And the beast of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all the living creatures fed themselves from it. In other words, this is the center of the kingdom and the world at this time for the animal kingdom, for birds and, the, and men and so on. And I was looking in the visions, verse 13, in my mind as I laid on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. And he shouted out and he spoke as follows. Chop down the tree, cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, scatter its fruit, let the beast flee from under it and the birds from its branches, and let the yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it. Now, i just make a comment there. People get hung up on the little details, I think. And I think this is one. It may be, might prove me wrong, but I think it's a small item. But it has a band around it, and there are all kinds of interpretations, a lot of wasted paper and a lot of wasted ink trying to figure out what this is. But the bottom line is, many talk about it, it's not going to split. Well, you know, I understand that. Uh, but the, the chains, the chains uh, of, uh, 
of, uh, uh, of the man and how he is going to be uh, retained and kept alive and so on has, to be, has something to do with that iron and brass band. And the new grass of the field, verse 15, the middle of the verse, and let him who is drenched, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beast in the grass of the earth. Now, observation, something has just happened. We move from the, uh, the pronoun it referring to the tree in verse 14 to him in verse uh, 15. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. In other words, the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar, the king. So it changes pronouns from the tree, it, to Nebuchadnezzar, him. Then notice, and let his mind be changed from that of a man. Let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. This is the sentence. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is the command of the holy ones, talking about the gods. Now, what we have here, child of God, is a form of mental disorder, insanity, if you please. And the word that used is used to describe this uh, particular uh, phenomenon is a mental problem. Notice it says, let his mind be changed from that of my man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. Look at verse 34. It emphasizes it again. And at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. Uh, you find it also in verse 36. And at that time, my reason returned to me. It's a form of illness. The particular word that most people use uh, is biotherapy. And, and it's made up of two Greek words. Bios, which means ox or cow, and anthropos, which means man. So it's the ox man or the cow man. In other words, he is mentally thinking of himself and therefore living out the concept that he is an animal. And that's because of this mental disorder that comes on him, and it comes on him for seven years. Now, there's a purpose behind it. I want you to notice in verse 17, this sentence is by decree of the angelic workers and the decision is a command of the Holy One in order that the living may know. Now, child of God, this it refers primarily to Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to see that in a few more verses. But here the emphasis is that it is something that is being expressed to all of us in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. So we're included uh, in this uh, particular concept, the Most High God. Now, verse 18. And this is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my king were, were able uh, to make known to me the interpretation. But you're able, for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now notice verse 19. Daniel evidently instantly knew the implications of the dream. Notice what he says. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, 
was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your uh, adversaries. Now, he's going to point out a couple of things to Nebuchadnezzar, and it's starting to become clear the implications. Notice what he says. The tree, verse 20, the tree which you saw, which became large and grew, verse 22, it is you. You are being represented by this huge tree that is universal in nature. The tree is you. Now notice verse 22. For you have become great and grown strong. Your uh, majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And he's to be chopped down for a period of seven periods or seven years. Now notice verse 24. And this is the interpretation, O king. It is the decree of the most high God, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that, watch it, you are to be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the fields. And then notice what he says in the latter part of the verse. And after the seven periods of time pass over you, until you, watch it, you recognize that the most high God rules over the realm of men and bestows it on whom he wishes. Now, let's stop and let's look at this passage with uh, some of the details in it that I think are important. The emphasis is on the most high God. In other words, there are other gods, lowercase g, gods. And we want to talk about that because the scripture recognizes this phenomenon even though it says to us Yahweh is one God. Okay? And we recognize even that he is the most high God according to the term here. But notice several things, I think, class, that are important. Remember we saw it applies to Nebuchadnezzar so he recognizes that the most high God rules. But also all living, that's all of us, are supposed to recognize that as well. And there's two particular concepts this morning class that I would like to emphasize, and there are probably others. We haven't got time to deal with all of them, and I'm too dumb to figure them all out. But what is this most high God all about? First thing, he is the preeminent being in the universe. Other gods may be so-called gods, but they're false God. Here is the God, the most high God. And uh, we need to recognize that there is this phenomenon of false gods and there are dangers associated with being involved with those false gods. Now, I'm going to ask you to walk through a number of passages of Scripture with me this morning. It's going to be just like I'm in college, and I'm going to try to help the students to see the thrust of the Scripture. 
Uh, but I think it's also important class for us because we hear through the ear gate, but we see through the eye gate, and they reinforce each other and help us to remember the concepts. So when we talk about he's the only true God, there are false gods, but he is the preeminent, he is the most high God. Let's look at a number of passages. And I want to begin in the second Samuel. Hold your place in Daniel. I'm going to come back to it, but I want you to go with me to Second uh, Samuel, and uh, you ought to, if you know your Bible a little bit, you ought to think of Second Samuel 7, the, and it's the Davidic kingdom, one of the major, uh, Davidic covenant, one of the major covenants in the scripture. Second Samuel chapter 7, and it's verse 22. 7.22. He says, verse 22, for this reason, Thou art, O Lord God, Thou art great, O Lord God, for there is none like Thee. There's no God besides Thee. Now look at that. There's none like You. There's no gods besides You. Now there's an emphasis on the, the uh, Most High God and saying, he is the only God. Okay, then we go to 2 Kings 19 and verse 15. 2 Kings 19 and verse 15. Interesting passage of Scripture. And it's the one I have in the front of my notes that describe what's going on here uh, in, uh, in the book of Daniel. 2 Kings chapter 19 verse 18, or verse, what is it, 15, Daniel 19, and uh, verse 15. Here it is. Thou art, watch it, articulated, thou art the God, thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and thou hast made heaven and earth. Thou art the God. Now, another passage that emphasizes this concept, and it's more familiar to you, I'm sure, and that's Psalm 95. If you'll look there with me for a second. My point in all of this is he's the most high God. And what does that mean to us? We're to recognize his preeminence and the fact that he is the only God. Psalm 95, look what it says, verse 3. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods, okay? It's acknowledging the existence or the perception of false gods or other gods, but he is the most high God. That's Psalm 95 and verse 3. Now, we're going to counterpoint ourselves into the New Testament, and we're going to see that there are some dangers lurking if we're not careful about these false gods. Go with me to 1 Corinthians and chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse uh, uh, 4 through verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4 through verse 6. Notice what it says. Therefore... Concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols. That was a great theological debate back in this day when they were uh, meats that were sacrificed 
sacrifice to the false gods, were they contaminated by that, and should Christians be involved in consuming it? Now, notice what it says. Therefore, concerning the the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know. Now, I want you to stop there and look up here. Throughout the scripture, there is an emphasis on what we are supposed to know. And that's the only way we're going to live a life that is meaningful, that honors God, and is a blessing to us. If we know certain things and operate in accordance with those principles. Therefore, concerning the eating of things, sacrifices, sacrifice to idols, we know there's no such thing as an idol in the world that, that is the idol God. That there is no God but one. Even for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven and earth, indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is but one God. Don't you forget that, he's saying. You've got to know this. Keep it in mind as you live your life. Then we go from there to chapter 10 and verse 19 and 20. The same book, chapter 10 Verse 19 and 20. Notice what it says. Now, what do I mean then? That the things sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, no, no. But I say that the things with the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not God. And I don't want you to become sharers in the demons. Now, class, look up here again. When men worship idols, they made those things. They made them out of stone. They made them out of wood. Uh, they carved those things out, and they were representations of their God. But how were they so influenced? How did they become so involved in thinking that this was the real deal? It was because of demonic activity going on behind the scenes. When they worship these idols, satanic influence occurred. God, uh, uh, Satan, the God of this world, uh, blinded their minds and they began to be influenced by things that they could not explain. What they would call supernatural. Why? Because there's demons uh, behind uh, those idols. And that's dangerous. I remember when I was pastoring in Dayton, Ohio, I did a series on Satan in my evening service, Sunday evening service, Satan and demons. And one Sunday night, a lady visitor came up to me and she said, Pastor Talley, I want to tell you something. She said, I work for whoever it was. I can't remember the name. And he was the fellow in Dayton who orchestrated the, the showing of all of the horror films and that kind of thing. And he was a Satan worshiper. And she said, he is influenced by that demonic activity that you're talking about. The other thing I remember is that my wife had to point it out to me. But as I began to work my way through that material having studied it and then presenting it, I began to be depressed and 
and discouraged, and I was being attacked, in my opinion, by the demonic activity. Satan didn't like what I was telling my people that the Bible said. And he took it out on me. Now, folks, this is real stuff. And we need to be a cognizant of it. And when we go to Daniel chapter 4, and Daniel is being caught, you must recognize the Most High God. We must also recognize it that the living may recognize. That's you and me. And we're to recognize the preeminence of God. But there's something else that I want you to see. The Psalms, for example, when it talks about uh, the demons or the idols that are behind the demons, Psalm uh, 135 is one that I just can't forget. Psalm 135, verse 15 says, The idols are but silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have a mouth, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. And there's no breath. They don't have any life. There is no breath in their mouth. They have no life. And then he makes this statement. And those that make them will be like them. And those that worship them also. In other words, the worshipers of the idols are people who have a mouth but really can't say anything of significance. They have eyes, but they don't understand. They have ears, but they don't understand. They don't have any spiritual life in them at all. Class, let's protect ourselves. Let's not get involved in that kind of thing. Remember, Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the most high God. Everything else is false and dangerous. Now, there's a second thing that I believe you and I need to recognize when we talk uh, in terms of, of this most high God. And that is that we have a tendency, child of God, to become very prideful. We are very arrogant, as a matter of fact. And the text is warning us, avoid that kind of thing in your life. And I want you to go with me to a couple of passages that I think will help us with that. He's the most high God. Who are you to be arrogant about what you do? You're like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm like Nebuchadnezzar. This is what I have done. This is what I have built. No, God gave it to you. You worked in accordance with his principles, and he has blessed your life. But don't you ever forget, you can't brag what you got when you were given it. Amen? Now, let's look at this. I want you to go with me to Proverbs 11. And verse 2. Proverbs 11 and verse 2. We're talking about the Most High God. And we're talking about how we're to respond to this Most High God. And it involves eliminating out of our life uh, pride and arrogance. And the first passage, 11-2 of the book of Proverbs. 
Notice what it says. Verse 2. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. Uh, other translation will say, then comes shame. So the text says, when pride comes, then comes shame. Be careful. You become prideful. You're going to be embarrassed before it's over. Then in verse chapter 16 and verse 18, Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 18. Notice what it says. Pride comes before destruction and a hearty spirit before a fall or before stumbling. Pride will lead you down a path that will be destructive and embarrassing for you and for me. Another passage, 29 and verse uh, 33. Proverbs 29 and verse 33. Let's look at it together. 29 and verse 33. Notice what it says. Verse 23, I should say. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. That's verse 23 of Proverbs 29. A man's pride will bring him low. Now, think about it. He is the most high God. We have gifts that he has given to us. We ought not to brag about that. Uh, I had the privilege to be involved in ministry for, what, 40-some years, 45 years, whatever it's been, since 1959, whatever that is. I've been preaching. I preached my first sermon in 1959 at the the Miami Rescue Mission. And I preached for 20 minutes. I preached from Genesis to Revelation. Everything I knew was in that one sermon. But, you know, the Lord used it. A guy got saved that night. At least as best we know, he made a profession. He came to know the Lord. Uh, But the bottom line is uh, God gave me some degree of communicative skills and the privilege of getting educated so I understand a little bit of theology. And I have no business even thinking about being braggadocious about that. Why? That's God's doing, not mine. Amen? And that's the way it is with us. Every one of us ought to have a ministry. Every one of us have some kind of gift. And God wants to use Uh, those gifts, uh, but we ought not to be prideful about it. In Galatians chapter 6, and I'm not going to turn to it, but in Galatians chapter 6, if any man thinks himself to be somebody, what? He deceives himself. Amen? I was talking to pastor before the service, and I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say, Uh, but You know, people come up and they say, oh, that was a great message. And I appreciate that reassurance. And and it's helpful to know that people do believe God is using me uh, on on an occasion. But the bottom line is I sometimes say thank you. And I've come under conviction about that. Um, And I don't want to, please don't stop telling me when I do something well. But the bottom line is, thank you is not the issue, is it? Praise God. 
that he used me. Does that make sense? So we've got to be careful. He's the most high God. So we've got to avoid pride in our lives. Now, what we've been talking about so far, the verses that we've gone through, I hope you, hope you understand, they are natural consequences. That's what I call them anyway. Natural consequences. Proverbs 11, 2, 16, 18, 29, 33, Galatians 6, 3. They're natural consequences. Pride brings about the fall. It brings about shame. It brings about deception when we're involved in those kinds of things. But the other side of the coin is the Most High God can deal with us when we become prideful. I want you to go with me to the Old Testament again and the book of Psalms. Psalm 101, verse 5. I want you to look at it with me. Proverbs, uh, Psalm 101. And it's going to talk about the consequences that I would call spiritual consequences. Everybody with me? The natural consequences that come, but God gets involved as well, and there are spiritual consequences. Notice uh, 105, and uh, I want you to notice what's my verse that I'm looking for. Um, 101, verse 5, that's it. 101, verse 5. No one who has a hearty look and an arrogant heart will I endure. You're going to break relationship with God. He is not going to put up with that. Okay? And we need to be careful about that kind of thing happening. I will not suffer, some of the translations say. Then go with me to Proverbs 6. Proverbs 6 and verse 16 and following. And notice what it says. Proverbs 6 and verse 16 uh, through verse uh, 19. Notice this is a familiar passage. But this is God's reaction uh, to pride. There are six things that God hates. Yes, seven or an abomination to him. Ooh, I don't want that. What does it say? The very first one, haughty eyes or prideful eyes. Uh, look at chapter 8 and verse 13. Look what it says. Chapter 8 and verse 13. Very important passage when we start talking about the Most High God and his reaction to our pride. Notice what it says, 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Then it says, <clears throat> pride and arrogance and the evil way. God hates the, these pride and arrogant things. Now, most high God. We are to recognize that he is the preeminent of God. Any other God is dangerous. Stay away from it. He is the most high God. <clears throat> Don't you get caught in pride. Because everything that you have, God gave it to us. Amen? Now, 
In James chapter 4 and verse 6, write it down. James chapter 4 and verse 6. Humble yourself under the hand of God. And what? He will exalt you in due time. Amen? I remember when I was, I was in seminary in Indiana. Uh, some of the guys got big churches while they were students. Uh, I, I'll name one and you'll know who it is. Dr. David Jeremiah. While he was working on his doctorate, he went and started to work in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and it absolutely exploded. It became such a large and blessed ministry. <clears throat> Dr. Jeremiah never finished his doctorate. He has an honorary doctorate. Not not putting that down. I'm saying God used him in a special way. Uh, I went to a little church that had less than 30 people in it. Now, by the time it was over, we had tripled. But the point I'm trying to make is Jeremiah had a fantastic ministry. My son, David, who was just here a few weeks ago, and pastor asked him to pray. He and his best friends, a theology professor at, uh, at uh, Biola University, they took a little church that had less than 50 people, just under 50, and uh, it's now 1,500 people. And, and they are both full-time professors at the university. God has blessed that ministry in a very special way. Uh, and uh, the point that I'm making is when we humble ourselves under the hand of God, he will exalt us in due time. Amen. Don't let us get caught in that trap. You want your slice of the pie just like I want my slice of the pie. But let God give you that pie. Don't you steal it by arrogance and pride from somebody else. Amen. Now, the other thing that I want you to see, and I think is very important, and we're running out of time, I want you to go back to Daniel, and I want you to look. We're going to get back, and we're going to start seeing prophecy in a little bit. Uh, but this chapter and the next chapter we've got to deal with, and even the f next one, before we get right back into the depths of uh, uh, prophetic literature. Notice verse 28. No, verse 20. Well, we'll put 28 and 29 together. All this appeared to Nebuchadnezzar the king. And 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. Notice what it says. And the king reflected and says, Is this not Babylon the great? which I myself have built as a royal re uh, residence by the might of my power and the glory of my majesty. Now, there's arrogance and pride personified. Amen. There it is. And uh, the thing I want you to see is the declaration was given by the angelic angels, and uh, they, it was a decree from God. But notice, 12 months later, that's a key word. We have here a case of what I call providential pace. We, and I, I wish I had more time to spend on it, we live in an age where everybody thinks you pray and instantaneously God's going to do you a miracle. Folks, that's not true. It's simply not true. 
That's why the psalmist would say, Lord, where are you? Why are the wicked getting by with all of this? Here it is. I'm going to judge you, Nebuchadnezzar, because of your pride. Twelve months later, the decree is carried out. That's providential pace. May I say something to you this morning? If he is the most high God, he can operate on his own time schedule. Amen? In fact, time is insignificant. And the psalm, uh, the scripture would say to us uh, that he is a God uh, that operates on the cancel of his own will. Ephesians chapter 1. He does what he plans to do. And we need to be part of that plan. He says, he worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Why? So that those of first who first trusted in Christ, what? Might be to the praise of his glory. We operate within his time frame so that he gets the glory. Not us. Amen? That's Daniel chapter 4 in 45 minutes. Amen. Let's keep it in mind. Avoid pride and keep him as the God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would help us to see these things. Help us to understand that we need to apply the concept of the Most High God in our own life. This is not just for Nebuchadnezzar. This is for us. Help us to be faithful to your word and to you as the most high God. In Jesus' name, amen.